When we first thought about talking to our guest today, we thought about diving into the reparations process that he helped lead for Japanese survivors of the internment camps on American soil, especially as a great follow-up to our conversation last week with Cameron Witten about reparations for slavery. And since we're both biracial Japanese and white women, Growing up in the United States meant that the history of internment camps, reparations, and the treatment of Japanese Americans as the other were things that we didn't necessarily learn about in school, but actually found out about through our communities. We thought then that we couldn't speak to a better person about this than someone who had been deeply and critically involved in the Japanese American reparations process from the start, and that's John Tateishi. Yeah, what we did not expect was the personal history lesson that we got from what it was like in Manzanar, he has personal experience in those internment camps we mentioned, to what it was like coming back to post-war Los Angeles after Japanese Americans were released from those camps, and then ultimately to conversations around what it means to be an American. You do not want to miss this conversation. In fact, we had to cut it short when we wanted to talk to John for basically several more hours or the rest of the day. So get ready to learn everything you did not learn in school today. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And don't forget about our brand new book on the shelves right now. Dear White Women, let's get uncomfortable talking about racism. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, my name is John Tateshi. I was at one time the director of the Japanese American Redress Campaign for an organization called the Japanese American Citizens League, JACL, which is a national civil rights group. And then later rejoined the organization. I was asked to come back on board as the national director while the JACL was kind of going through a transformation. And I said, okay, three months and ended up seven years. So I've always told my kids, don't ever do anything temporarily, because it's not going to work that way. It never does. I love and that. Something you forgot to say, too, is that you're an author. Oh, you, oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I have yeah. your book. <laughs> I'm a really prolific writer. I've published two books that I guess around 35 years apart, one back during the redress campaign in 1984, titled And Justice for All, which is a collection of oral histories of people who went through the incarceration experience of World War II as adults. And I wanted to get, you know, different takes on what that experience was like for them. I did like something like 300 interviews. And out of that, I picked 30, which I thought typified the experience for all of us. And my editor kept saying things like, give me some gory stuff, you know, like shootings and beatings and rapes and crap like that. And I said, no, because that didn't happen. You know, they were rare if they ever did. And I want to include what was really a typical experience for Japanese Americans so that those who don't know anything about this would understand what we went through. And then more recently, last year, um, just as the coronavirus started spreading in the United States, my book got published titled Redress, the Inside Story of the Successful Campaign for Japanese American Reparations. Can you just clarify also for our listeners, you said when we were incarcerated. Can you just expound upon that as well? Yeah, I was born before World War II. I was born in 1939. So I was almost three years old 
at the time that the U.S. government instituted a policy on the West Coast. It was actually the army that carried this out, that forced the removal of the entire Japanese American population from the West Coast. And, you know, 99.5% of any ethnic Japanese lived on the West Coast, so virtually the entire population forced from our homes and put into concentration camps, into prisons in various parts of the country. As I said, I was just about to turn three when this happened in my family's case. And we ended up at a camp called Manzanar, which is near the Mojave Desert in California. It was one of only two camps in California. The rest were in places like Colorado, Idaho, Wyoming, Arkansas, spread out. And, you know, these were detention centers. These were prisons. And we were there for the duration of the war until the war ended. And before the war ended, the government ended that what they call the exclusion policy and gave every family $25 and said, you know, find your way home, wherever you're going to go. And that was how the camps closed down. And we returned to, my family returned to the West Coast, to Los Angeles, where we had been before the war. What was that like, if you don't mind me asking, sort of coming back and starting fresh? Because there was already a life established for your parents and your family. And then with $25, you come back and was there still a a vibrant community of people that returned or was it difficult to reestablish? It was a sort of a mixed bag in returning because we got for the first time for some of us, the memory of freedom. And it was a really unusual circumstance where we left the prisons and made our way back to, in our case, to Los Angeles. And we lived in an area called West Los Angeles, which is kind of near Santa Monica and Westwood. It's on the west side. And it's an enclave community, a one square mile of Japanese Americans, Mexicans, and working class whites. And if you look at where we migrated to within California as we returned, what you'll find is most of the people in our community ended up back where they were before the war started and we were forced to leave. And what's really interesting is if you look at the population centers where Japanese Americans were, there were basically five different places and you marked them on a map and then put a acetate overlay on it with the Mexican population. They're exactly in the same places. So as we returned, everyone else said, you're not welcome back. We don't want you in our community. I mean, virtually, you know, it was segregation. And the only groups, the only group really that welcomed us and said, you know, come live with us. I mean, in our communities, because we had shared those communities before with them were the Mexican-American populations and the different groups. So you get like on the east side, what's called Boyle Heights. Sort of a tough area, but that's where the Mexican population was largely before World War II, but that's also where Japanese Americans resided. And, you know, it spread from Boyle Heights into the east part of, well, what's called J-Town, Japantown, little Tokyo down there, which is right next to Overa Street, which is uh, sort of the tourist Mexican area. So you go from kimonos to sombreros you know, within a couple of short blocks, but it was a mixing of our two communities. And so there's always been this kind of war between that population group and ours. And we returned and found our ways back 
into our communities and tried to rebuild those communities. Before World War II, there were 47 Japan towns from San Diego up to the Oregon border. Today, there are three. And of the three, the only true J-town is in San Jose, where it's actually a neighborhood gathering place. In San Francisco, it's all corporate owned by Japanese or American companies that keep slashing the community. And down in Los Angeles, in Little Tokyo, that's mainly Japanese corporate interests. And, you know, a lot of Japanese Americans have tried to bring money into J-Town down there and infuse some life back into it. But, you know, those are where we identify. And, but, you know, there are these little pocket areas too, like where I grew up, it's called Sawtell or West LA. There is one street called Sawtell, which had, had at one time, every Japanese store in West LA on that street, on Sawtell, within a four five block area, you know, basically a one street town. And we, you know, when we came back from the war, we had nothing. And so in the case of our family, we moved into the Methodist church where my parents had a membership. They converted the social hall, such as it was, into these little cubbyhole units, living units. And, you know, during the war in these camps, we had, we were in barracks which were divided into three parts called apartments. And the living units were 16 by 20. So if you were a young couple and you had your own apartment, you had space. If you were a family of 10 kids with grandparents with you, you were crammed into 16 by 20. When the war ended, we came back to West Los Angeles. My family ended up at the West LA Methodist Church. And in one of these cubby holes, which was... Geez, you know, I want to say it was half the size of what we had when we were in Manzanar. But the thing is, we could walk out of there and go anywhere we wanted. And that was that, that really, for us kids, a real sense of, I don't know, it was like a kind of freedom we never understood. And, you know, but for us, for kids, it was learning what America was all about. Because a lot of us grew up in those camps, you know, our formative years. And we understood, I mean, you know, I think about myself. I was six years old when I left Manzanar, and I know that I understood we were there because our ethnicity was Japanese. Everybody in the camp was Japanese. And those who came and left were white, always. And, you know, we had teachers who would come into the camp, and uh, these were volunteers from American friends, the Quakers who provided teachers for the camps because in their wisdom, the army and the government didn't provide teachers, didn't even provide school space or classroom space. And so they had to convert a couple of the barracks and make schoolrooms out of them. But we didn't have teachers. If you had gone to college, if you're Japanese American and we got forced out, put into these camps, if you had a college education of any kind, whether one year or four years, you were asked to be a teacher because you had more education than the general population. And so the teachers, you know, it was all very makeshift until the American friends sent teachers to our camps. And, but, you know, I would watch them come in and leave and think, we can't do that. I know we can't. And I grew up with this sort of perverted sense of America was outside the fence. And I remember saying to one of my brothers once, you know, 
I want to go out there to America. I want to see what America is like. And I don't remember his response, but, you know, I'm the youngest of four boys. And it was probably, oh, you're really stupid or some such brotherly endearing statement. But, I, you know, I had the sense that I, I would hear about America, you know, and things like the Pledge of Allegiance and some of the songs. And I had this curiosity about, about America and wanting to go out there. In front of Manzanar, there's a highway that passes, Highway 395. And I would see these cars. I'd go to the front of the camp and stand at the barbed wire fence and look out at nothing. You know, it was desert. It was a high desert. And every now and then I'd see a car pass by on the highway. And I was, at some point, I remember being really struck by the fact that every time a car passed, it was a white person in that car. Just as the administrators were white, just as the guards in those guard towers were white, and the teachers who came and left. And we couldn't do that. We couldn't get in a car and drive. We were stuck here. And so I understood that in a way a child would, that this was about race, that we were here only because we were Japanese, because I don't remember anyone doing anything wrong that, you know, we would, and I had no idea what a prison was, except that I knew I could not walk outside the fence, that that was a warning as children we were given all the time. You know, in, in time, we got used to it and we would sneak out. Uh, there were places where you could sneak out and the guards, because of the way those towers were positioned, they couldn't see you. In fact, there was a, an irony. There was a Manzanar fishing club. You think, wait a minute, these guys are in these prisons and there's no lake in there. How can they have a fishing club? Well, there were mountain streams that came off the Sierras and ran down near our camp. And there was this one place where there was a gully and uh, the men would sneak out at night, crawl through the gully under the fence and go out to the streams and they would go fishing at night. And so, you know, there were these different things that happened, but I understood you could do this if you could sneak out and not get caught or if you had permission. And my grandfather was one of those few people who did have permission. But when we got back to Los Angeles, for us kids, it was trying to understand the kind of hatred and vitriol we faced, sometimes on a daily basis. It wasn't fun for us, and we knew our parents were going through a lot. But we, you know, as children, we tried to adjust, and in, in a sort of strange way that children do this, we tried to protect our parents by not telling them what we were going through. Some of us used to get in fights, and there were, you know, for the most part, we minded our own business and went about our business in school, tried to avoid trouble. But every now and then, quite honestly, I'd see some bully kid picking on a Japanese girl and I would get really pissed off and decide, you know, I ain't going to let him do that. And would go challenge these kids. And other times, minding my own business and someone, some kid would come up to me and give me crap. And so, you know, as a kid, you either stand up or you swallow your pride and walk away, which we did most of the time. But there's a point at which you don't do that anymore. And there were Japanese American kids who got into fights. I was one of them. Not a lot, but enough that I got to be a pretty good fighter. In fact, I, you know, as I recall, I was a little cocky about it. Like some kid would challenge me and I'd think, ah, you're such a punk. Go get a friend. <laughs> uh, 
But, you know, it was a very different experience for us as children. We faced this with our schoolmates, but at the same time, we had a way to communicate with each other. Just, all of us Japanese kids stuck together. You know, they say, oh, you're cliquish. Yeah, we did because safety and numbers kind of thing. Plus, you know, we weren't allowed to mix with other kids. And the older we got, the more that became pronounced as how we existed. But after the war, for a few years, we stuck together and we talked. We talked all the time about camp. And there was this kind of hierarchy we created in our own minds about which camp you were in. So in the way when you meet, you know, as adults, you meet people and one of your first questions is, uh, where do you live or what do you do? That's how you identify people. For us kids, it was always, what camp were you in? And there was this hierarchy by, I guess, by how much trouble there was in the camps. Manzanar had a riot within the first year, and it was a pretty awful riot. A lot of things happened in it. So Manzanar became one of those places. And, you know, Gila River, no one ever talked about Gila River because it was a very confined area. They were on an Indian reservation. And these other camps, there were 10 camps in total. Well, Manzanar, if you were in L.A., Growing up, Manzanar was at the top of the hierarchy. So some kids said, oh, I was a rower. Saying, like, yeah, get away. You know, rower is nothing. But if you were at Heart Mountain where there was a lot of trouble, then, you know, you were kind of cool. And so we created this kind of image for ourselves of what our lives had been and what they were becoming. But we talked all the time. And you know, I dare say we lied about things. We exaggerated like, oh, you think that was bad? You should have seen what happened here. And, you know, we tell these stories to each other. And I realized in retrospect, what we were trying to do was articulate what that was all about, what that experience was for each of us and for us collectively, because we couldn't talk to our parents. The parents, the Nisei, would not talk about camp at all, because it had created such a psychological wound in that whole generation. You know, you had the Issei, the immigrants who came in around the turn of the century, and then the Nisei being born as the first generation in the United States, so American citizens. They grew up second class, understood they were second class, and were very proud of being American, especially as we got closer and closer to war with Japan, and all that hostility started building up. And so, you know, by then they were teenagers, and going through high school and some through college by the time uh, the war broke out with Japan. And so they identified so completely as American and hardly spoke any, you know, they speak Japanese, but not a lot. And for them, it was a shock and a kind of indignity that turned to guilt and shame because no one comes out of prison saying, unless you're a tough guy, saying, hey, man, I was in prison. You know, for someone coming out of a very strong cultural tradition, as one has, if you're Japanese, ethnic Japanese in this country, then having been in trouble, having been in prison is something you're really ashamed of and feel guilty. You know, there was someone who used an analogy once, and I thought it was a pretty accurate one until I realized it wasn't. He was a good friend of mine, an activist up here in the Bay Area named Edison Uno. He, he said, you know, the Nisei reacted to camp, what we call camp, in much the same way a woman who's been assaulted reacts to that violence against her. She's the one who is the victim 
but can't talk about it because all the shame and guilt is with her and she's the innocent victim. In some ways, that analogy works in that we were innocent and guiltless, but put into these prisons for the fact of our race. It was only about race, had nothing to do with anything else other than greed and uh, racism. But we went into these camps without a shred of evidence against anyone Japanese and then came out with this label of having been traitors to our own country. There's no worse label you can have in time of war than to be called a traitor. But that's who we were because, you know, God forbid America never puts innocent people in jail. But here was this entire population. So we came out with this mark. It was almost like a label across our head that, you know, we were, we had been traitors. That's why we were in these prisons. And so for the Nisei, the reaction was so profound, they couldn't deal with it. The sense of shame and the sense of guilt. And as a result, they turned to silence, stopped talking about or never talked about camp. And in a lot of cases, didn't even talk to their wives and husbands over dinner tables. And the kids born after the war knew nothing about camp. Because, you know, by then, my part of the Sansei generation were approaching seven, eight years old, nine, 10. A kid who's even two years younger is really a lot younger. But then you get the second part of the Sansei generation who were born in the late 40s, early 50s. We're approaching teenage years. So we had nothing to do with them. We never talked to them. They were just, you know, the word kodomo. They were just kids, brats. And so we ignored them. They never heard about this until they went to college. And uh, there's a history professor emeritus, Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati, told me this story. And his name is Roger Daniels, one of the first scholars to write about the World War II experience of Japanese Americans from the point of view of these people were innocent victims of a racist policy. All the other books written by that time were written by former government people who justified the government's actions. So Roger Daniels started writing these books, calling them concentration camp. And he was telling me about this one kid he had in his class talking about World War II. And then Roger started talking about these camps. And after the experience of Japanese Americans, after the lecture was over, this kid came up to him and said, what are you talking about? And Roger said, call your parents. You know, and the parents were, in, I think, in Los Angeles. This kid found out through that class and was shocked and really, really pissed off. At first, he was angry at his parents for being such cowards and letting the government do this to them. And I think it's a typical pattern. You get angry at your parents or the people who are victimized for not standing up until you realize there are other circumstances. And for years, the younger Sansei used to really talk badly about the Nisei, that they allowed this to happen. And, you know, if I were there, I would have told the government to go screw itself. But they didn't understand what that was all about in 1942. And when the redress campaign started, and we started digging up a lot of information that we had no access to before, and started educating ourselves and our community, then suddenly that anger shifted from 
their parents to the government where it should have been in the first place. And so it was a process that we went through. But, you know, for kids growing up in those camps and then coming out, it was a really confusing time trying to reconcile ourselves as American. We understood who we were. But, you know, our understanding was we were Japanese first and then American, even though we were told you're American and you happen to be Japanese. But because everything was stacked against us racially, it really turned us inward to ourselves. And so in the way the Nisei became silent, we started articulating the experience with each other and kept that memory alive. And, you know, it became this kind of overwhelming, like a, a bridge from past to the present that we had to keep crossing all the time. I am fascinated by all that you shared. So thank you so much. And on that note of the bridge, I was curious, you know, you said when you came out of the camps, you know, you were very aware that you were Japanese first at that point and that people were discriminating based on your race. And I wonder how you feel now. Here we are. Coronavirus has, you know, increased this anti-Asian hate sentiment. And yet I think a lot of the younger generation of Asian people a lot of times have said, and there have been people we've talked to who are like, oh, well, I really don't think about my Asian identity. I'm like the white alignedness of the Asian population nowadays. And these conversations around the Asian identity have really come to the forefront. So how do you see this trend of people who think that like anti-Asian hate is new? Oh, well, if you lived through anything like we have, you understand that that's not really true, that I mean, in fact, you have to go back to the first Asians coming to this country in mass, the Chinese who came here during the gold rush. I mean, you know, people forget that the Chinese didn't seek their way here. They were brought here by American companies looking for cheap labor, put them into those gold mines and onto the railroad tracks. I mean, basically, they had really crappy jobs. But when they came here, they faced a kind of hostility and anger and hatred that wasn't unlike what Blacks were going through in the South. I mean, you know, I, I read about some of the history of the Chinese here in the San Francisco area. They were hung, they were lynched, and some were used for target practice and all these really atrocious things that, it, that they had to endure. So it starts with the arrival of the first immigrants from Asia and what they experienced. And then 30, 40 years later, Japanese started coming from Japan and the immigration pattern changed because there was a difference in the type of immigrant coming here where the Chinese were brought as, as cheap labor. Japanese came here looking for a place. You know, these were farmers. Most of the immigrants who came from Japan were peasant farmers. Although it's amusing because you hear Japanese Americans say, oh, no, 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 my grandparents weren't farmers. They were samurai. It's amazing how many samurai came when they didn't have to. But, you know, there is that kind of experience. And it's the entire history of being Asian in America is fraught with hostility and racism and anger towards us and a non-acceptance of who we are as Americans. I was talking to someone the other day who's French and, you know, and she's blonde. And I said, if you and I were walking down the street and someone coming the other direction would look at us and point and say, oh, a foreigner, 
they would be pointing at me, not you, because you happen to be white and I happen not to be white. So in their eyes, they see me as foreigner. You know, in the same way during the redress campaign and also after 9-11, we were doing a lot of work on what was happening. I would go on television and do you know, various kinds of talk shows. It was really different when I did talk shows on television and when I did it on radio. Because on radio, it took people a little while to figure out, oh, this guy is Japanese or this guy is Asian. Where on television, immediately, they see an Asian face and they see me as Asian foreigner. So what's happened now and exacerbated by a really ignorant, stupid president and a racist president who identified the, the coronavirus as coming from Asia, you know, the China flu, the, all the stupidity of, of all that. It marked us as the target for what would become a really horrendous and dangerous epidemic in this country. I mean, as it spread throughout the United States, we would hear more and more about Asians being attacked, Asians becoming the victims of the anger for what this virus was all about. I mean, even I experienced it here in liberal Marin County, where someone said to me about, take your virus back to Asia where you came from. Now, I won't tell you my reaction because you wouldn't be able to run it anyway. But you we'll know, just it, pretend we'll channel your childhood. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> I think we can extrapolate that. Yes. Yeah. The only thing I didn't do was slug her, although I felt like it. But, you know, that kind of thinking really gave... I think a sense of freedom to those people who are racist in this country against Asians. And we're seeing for the first time a reporting of anti-Asian hate crimes or hate incidents where it's always existed. In the JACL, the centerpiece of our, when I became the director around the turn of the century, because I come out of that other century, I decided I would make our hate crimes program the centerpiece of our civil rights agenda. And so we operated that out of the Chicago office where there's, you know, in the Midwest, it's, there's so many white supremacist groups out there. But it's something that was always around. And as a civil rights organization, we understood this was something that would be a problem for Asians. You know, and it's called the Japanese American Citizens League, but it's a civil rights organization whose mission is to protect the rights and the freedoms of Asian Americans. And so that was something that was already an operational program when I became the director of the JACL. And it was the fastest expanding program we had because it, hate crimes against Asians were so prevalent. But we knew from our program that maybe one-tenth, maybe one-hundredth of incidents ever get reported. And, you know, Japanese Americans are savvy enough to know how to avoid problems. It's the immigrant groups that come over that fall victim to a lot of this. Because, you know, if someone starts saying something to me, I'll say something back and let them know that, you know, you can do this, but you're not getting away with it. Most immigrants come to this country uh, from Asia, unable to, to speak fluently, sometimes unable to speak English at all. And so they become the victims and they become easy targets because you can see, you know, who they are and places like Chinatown and Koreatown down in LA and, and the various population groups. And so the idea of this being something new is absurd. It's always been there and it's been there in more obvious ways 
at sometimes than other others. But uh, anti-Asian sentiments in this country have always been a part of what we have to deal with. You know, and it comes down to the question of, so who is an American? Who do you accept as American? Is it you because you're tall, you're blonde and beautiful maybe, and you look like you should be American? Or is it me who doesn't look at all like you? And I certainly am not as tall as you. So what makes you a better American than me? By the fact that you're not someone who's ethnic? Well, you know, you are, but your ethnicity doesn't show. Mine does. And we start to judge people on the way they look. And, you know, Martin Luther King's famous statement, but don't judge me on the color of my skin. Unfortunately, that is exactly how people judge you in this country if you're not white. They will look at you and see you in varying degrees of acceptance or not acceptance. So for me, you know, something like the redress campaign wasn't about the legal ramifications of rectifying an injustice of the past. You know, it, the restorative justice of what redress was about to me was identifying and making America understand that we as citizens of this country demand our rights as much as you demand your rights because you are not like us, that it's the question of what is a good American? So, you know, I would go around arguing about, yeah, you know, we were in those camps, but you know that Japanese American men volunteered from those camps after losing all their constitutional rights to join the United States Army to become in one unit fighting in Europe for only 13 months became the most highly decorated unit in the history of the United States Army, bar none. It's an incredible record of bravery and sacrifice after losing their freedom. So are you a better American than one of those boys laying in a grave in Europe because of the way you look and because of the way he looked? Tell me who's a better American. And, you know, you can't lay that kind of judgment. It's the idea of physical identity doesn't apply in this country anymore. I mean, it's certainly is used as an excuse, as justification for certain kinds of behavior. But you can't tell me that someone is a better American simply by the way he or she looks. You know, it just doesn't apply. And, you know, so for me, something like redress, and I don't talk about this in the book because I was trying to reconcile certain things that, that had to be dealt with. I think the book I would want to write is a book about the philosophical concepts and the way we had to navigate through the cultural, political, and philosophical levels of what the campaign was all about. You know, conceptually, what was redress really about? And as I faced audiences, I always used to say it's about the Constitution and about who we are as Americans. But there are all these other things you know, underlying everything. And trying to reconcile all of that could only be made as we went step by step through this campaign. So I know you I, have other questions. Well, I have so many other questions. First, like hearing you talk about LA, right? I was born in 1977 and grew up in Los Angeles. And so spent my Saturdays in Little Tokyo and had seen, you know, my father still goes to Little Tokyo when he's not in Japan. And yeah, that was just the overlay that you put on Los Angeles was so fascinating for me to because I left and I haven't really been back in the same way. But I want to ask you about redress and the redress campaign, because you 
have talked about it. And I thought how you talked about it in the book was so interesting because of all of the work that you had to do regarding really like a media strategy around redress and reparations. And you, you say, you know, if you convince the public, you know, then you can convince Congress. And so I'm curious to hear, cause you talk about, you know, doing the interviews and speaking to people like how, you know, why did you settle on this strategy? Why was it so important? And, you know, obviously, you know, it was successful. I'm, I'm curious to see like what you thought went well and maybe what you would change about that, if anything. In my mind, that was always what we had to do was convince people that we were American because I grew up being forced to think of myself as less than American because that was the pigeonhole we were relegated in. And so in my mind, that's always been an issue for those of us who are not white American. And particularly for Japanese Americans because of the association with the war. And people would say to me always, well, after what you guys did at Pearl Harbor, and that identity always existed. And when I first joined the JACL in 1975, the redress campaign or redress program in the organization had already existed for five years, hotly debated, and a lot of anger and disagreements about what should or shouldn't be done, or should we just leave it alone? You know, this whole Japanese philosophy, shikatakanai, just leave it there. And so when I joined the JACL, this was already an ongoing program. And what happened was I was appointed to chair the regional operation here in the Bay Area to be the chairman of the uh, Northern Cal region redress program. And it was one of the reasons why I was really interested in the JACL, because growing up, I had no interest in the organization at all. And, you know, I, I'm a product of Berkeley in the 60s. And so I always felt like my politics were so far left of the community. And I saw the JACL as a pretty conservative organization until I started getting interested in it and joined it and realized it's actually pretty progressive. And so what I did when I became the regional chair was lay out a strategy to see how far we could go with this if we approached the public with this issue. Once I was able to get on the air and talk to the public, I realized that these people have no idea who we are because as soon as I start talking about what happened to us during World War II and how we ended up in these prisons, the calls would just come flooding in about after what you guys did at Pearl Harbor, you know, you're lucky we didn't do what they did in Germany or in, in Europe. And after a while, it became so clear that people had no idea, one, about the camps, and two, about who we were and why we were there. And so to me, we could never get anywhere until we educated the American public about what happened to us. And I was thinking, you know, this is one of the most liberal areas in the country, Northern California. And if here we're running into this kind of a, an onslaught of anger and racism and misunderstanding, what's it like once you get past the East Bay Mountains, the hills, and go into places like Walnut Creek and God forbid, you know, forbid places like Brentwood and Antioch, you know, which are basically quasi-rural communities. And that's exactly where a lot of those calls were coming in from. Then I found out there's a KKK 
chapter up in Santa Rosa. And, you know, to me, the idea of the Bay Area as a liberal sort of haven was completely shattered. Once I started that as part of what I was doing locally, regionally. So when I was appointed to chair the national program, the national discussion, really within the JCL, I felt that we had talked long enough. It was 1978 that it was time we went public with this. And I'd launched it as a campaign just a few hours after I got the appointment, sent out press releases. And I realized what was going to happen. I figured what was going to happen is that we would get all the negative reaction. And that would give us the platform on which we could fight this battle. But we needed that out there and we needed the negative reaction first. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Started out, I guess the first major publication was the Wall Street Journal had an editorial called Guilt Mongering. And just coincidentally, there was a, a review of a book about the treachery of countries like Japan and Germany during World War II. But, you know, this was the beginning of the fight that we would have to fight. And I figured unless you could convince the American public of the wrong and the injustice of what happened, we would never get a bill through the Congress. Getting that bill into the Congress would be the toughest thing we we would ever face on this. And that would never happen without at least the public supporting what we were doing. And that, you know, we would raise it as a question rather than as a demand. I mean, the JSL approach was really strategic, and it became even more so as we pushed this issue farther and farther into the public arena. And we kept talking, my committee kept talking about, you know, how we were going to do this, the kind of legislation, or would we take it to the Supreme Court? And we decided that we wanted to go through the Congress because it was the Congress that put us there. And it was going to have to be the Congress to acknowledge that it was wrong or say that we don't care about the Constitution, because that was the way we were going to approach this issue. And so we said, okay, let's put a bill together. And there was a guy on my committee who said, maybe we should find out what the Japanese American members of Congress think about this. We knew one of them really supported it, a guy named Norm Mineta, who is from San Jose, a rising star in the House. But, you know, we had two Hawaiians in the Senate, Danny Noe and Spark Matsunaga, both of whom had tremendous respect of the colleagues, but neither of whom went through this thing with us. You know, a different experience. And because Hawaii didn't go through a similar kind of uh, exclusion and shutdown. And so, you know, it, it made a lot of sense. We met with them and Danny Noe suggested this approach, this strategy of a federal commission. And... That was the strategy we chose. It was really unpopular, but we decided we would pursue that strategy simply because it had two functions that would serve our purpose. One was that we would, if we did it right, we would get so much publicity from the workings of the commission that we would never be able to get that kind of publicity on our own. But the more important thing to me was that we would design this commission to hold public hearings in the main population areas of Japanese Americans, which ended up being Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago. By the way, I tried to get Denver in there, but just weren't enough people there. So we had those four major cities where we would hold hearings and the commission hired a PR firm that was amazing and how productive they can make this. 
they got us on the evening network news every night that these hearings were held. And it did, in fact, give us more publicity than we ever could have imagined. But the important thing for me was that this would be the first opportunity where the Nisei would be allowed to testify, to tell their own personal story, to talk about the tragedies they experienced because of the government policies. It was a high-risk strategy because at that point in time, the Nisei would not talk about the camp experience, would not say a word publicly. Within the JSL, there was a lot of debate, and the JSL at that time was a Nisei organization run by the Nisei. All the influence was there. And so while you in the organization, you would hear the Nisei talking, but in the community, if you went out in the community, there was dead silence, except for the elders saying, don't do this. You shame us. We do not demand money ever. And we don't ask for help. You know, and they'd go through this whole litany about after the war, we did it on our own. And, and you know, that we didn't go to banks. We didn't go to anyone. We did our own tanemoshi and saved money together and, and paid for our way and built our own community back. So there was that kind of cultural pride about being Japanese and all this giddy and everything else. And yet we were saying that we were going to challenge the United States public and the United States Congress on this one issue. And we would be that nail that stuck its head up way high. And we we're going to get pounded down and we we're going to get shattered, but we we're going to fight this to the end. And so when it came to the strategy of holding public hearings in the community, it was so high risk that I thought, boy, you know, this is going to fall flat on our face if none of the Nisei wanted to testify. But what happened was as soon as the schedules went out with the hearing dates, the Niseis flooded the commission with demands that they be allowed to testify. There were I don't remember the exact number. I want to say around 200,000 Japanese American Nisei who demanded their name be put on the list to testify. And, you know, three days of hearing in each city, there wasn't enough time to do that. So the alternative was the commission said, you can write and submit written testimony, and we will read every single word of every single testimony, which they did, in fact. They hired staff just to read the testimonies. And, you know, I, because I was working with the commission at that time and was in D.C. a lot, they had rooms, floor to ceiling, of cardboard boxes filled with these personal testimonies going through each one of them. But they did testify, and that changed everything. That was what changed the whole mood of the country, and it changed the community, and it changed the way we could approach this issue in the Congress. That's when I really decided we're going to force the Congress to say that the Constitution really means nothing when it comes to people like these people. But it does mean something if something happens in, I don't know, Iowa or whatever. And it was identifying who was important as an American citizen. That, to me, was the fight we were going to be fighting all the way through this thing. And so that strategy was intended to achieve certain things. And, you know, a lot of times, I think most of the times in politics, you're either very clever and can navigate stuff, or you're really lucky. And in, in our case, it was pure luck in so many ways, because given the, the way we had behaved for 
by that time, 40 years, the Nisei, there's no way you could expect the Nisei to testify. This was their campaign. You know, we, some of us Sansei who were running it, we were just kind of at the wheel. But it was the Nisei who were at the heart and soul of what this was all about. They were the ones who were the most damaged. And they were the ones who could tell that story. You know, if I were to testify, and I did, I did this, you know, sort of pro forma thing about, you know, Americanism, all that stuff. But if I were to give an honest testimony, I would have talked about the fights I got in as a kid and what the kinds of crap we had to go through because we weren't white and how we had to endure so much. But, you know, this wasn't about us. This was about the Nisei and this was about the Constitution. And, you know, in the end, there was no better group to talk about what this meant as an American to this group of people than the Nisei. And, you know, for I look back and I think, oh, that was very lucky for us that they were willing to speak out because there was no way we could ensure that they would. But as it turns out, they couldn't wait to say something. And they were very, very honest. But I have to tell you also that that was the most painful experience I ever went through, hearing these testimonies one after another of these Nisei getting up there and starting to talk about what their own personal lives had been and how it had been changed or how it had been destroyed and then breaking down. Just about every single person who testified, Nisei testified, ended up crying in public, just sobbing, some of them. And, you know, as a young Japanese American, oh, young, I was in my 40s at the time, I had never seen Nisei men cry in public, ever, unless they were drunk. Then, they, you know, they're just sloppy drunk and crying. But I had never seen Nisei men cry in public, no matter the circumstances. They just never did that. You know, giri and all this Japanese cultural stuff, the stoicism, it didn't hold for them in the hearings. And, it, you know, it was really difficult. I swore I would never do anything like this again because I led that decision to do this, to take this strategy. I felt an obligation to sit through every testimony of every person at these hearings. And there were about three weeks of testimonies. And by the end, I was wiped out. You know, I just can't deal with this kind of emotion all the time. And fortunately, it ended in Chicago, where there's a whole different mindset. There wasn't a reticence that you, you see among Nisei on the West Coast. And there was more humor in the Chicago hearings. And it was a you know, sort of comic relief for me. The best thing I remember of the humor was, I think it was Arthur Goldberg as this one Nisei man. If you saw the Japanese army coming over the hill here in Chicago, what would you do? And, you know, it was a set-up question, like, well, I'm American and all that. And this Nisei guy said, well, first of all, Mr. Commissioner, there ain't no hills in Chicago, so forget that. And he said, and besides, if the Japanese army got this close or this far, both you and me would be completely shit out of luck. And the place just broke out laughing. And, you know, it was that kind of thing that changed the whole mood for certainly for me, but I could see it in the commissioners that they really welcomed this kind of release. They needed it because they sat through all of this themselves and where I could take a break and go outside and get some relief. They sat the whole time. And uh, so, you know, it was a really difficult issue to deal with. And, but, you know, what that commission hearing did 
And the commission's strategy was help convince Americans that what happened to us should never have happened. The way you just shared that story, I felt the weight of what you were describing and sitting through the testimonies and the respect that was given to everybody who did testify by making sure their stories were heard and that someone was listening. And it it speaks to me about the power of voice and people's humanity being shared and the fact that that is so powerful. You know, and this is also about a history where you could have people who lived through these experiences, like they could share their own like the impact of U.S. policy on their own lives firsthand. And it makes me think of the latest, you know, H.R. 40 and this campaign to have the study of reparations for slavery. Like, what do you think about that campaign and how it is so different and yet hopefully could potentially take something from what, you know, was gleaned through the process of the Japanese reparations? You know, when we did the strategy to get testimony, personal testimonies, This is before this whole global reparations movement has started. I mean, this is in the early 80s, 1981, when the hearings were held. And so the concept of truth-telling and truth and reconciliation had not yet been born as a subject that was part of a discussion globally. But in retrospect, I realized what was happening as we went through that process is exactly that. It was truth-telling as never heard before, certainly not by the commissioners or the public. And for many of us, you know, we had never heard a lot of these stories. They had been hidden in the psyches of of the Nisei. That was what was so powerful. The fact that these were people who went through the experience, had lived through it, had sacrificed because they were asked to do that. And many of them had lost sons in the war who said, you know, I was willing to give up my son, but if you don't do this now, there would be a price. The kind of seething anger that lay below the consciousness of a lot of the Nisei, you could see it starting to to evolve. That had an impact on the way the public perception of our experience was. I think that there, you know, certain factors, I mean, you you talk about relativism in, in a lot of things, but In our case, because we had people who had experienced it and could talk about this as a firsthand experience versus what's happening now with the Black reparations movement, there are certain difficulties they're going to face, other than this enormous sense of racism in this country, that they're going to face operationally and I think pragmatically and politically in trying to get a bill through the Congress. Now, keep in mind, What they're trying to achieve right now with H.R. 40 is to get a commission established. They, you know, with any kind of major kind of major legislation like our reparations bill, the first, you know, the House has has 435 members. You can pick up 100 members pretty easily. All you do is get the majority to, or in the case of a Democratic majority, you just get the majority to sign on. Most of them will. And there are sprinklings of other people who will or won't sign on. You figure out how to work that. Right now, they have, they're close to the numbers they need. They need 218 votes to get this bill through and to pass it over to the Senate to pass. And, you know, we have an uh, election looming. And with all the reaction that's gone on in this country, it's, it creates a real challenge for them. They need to get this done right now to, in order to ensure that they at least get the hearings. 
The difference for them in the hearings and for us was that we had people who lived through the experience and they don't. They're talking about things of the past. I can tell you that with, within our framework of what we were doing, you know, we're talking 30, 40 years after World War II ended. People would say, well, that's that other generation. They did that. We didn't do it to you. Why should we have to pay for what they did? There's always going to be that. So when you talk about black reparations, you're going to face that obstacle about, well, you know, that might have been my great, great, great grandfather who owned a plantation, but I've been generous and kind to African-Americans and I don't feel the same way and I would never allow slaves. That may be, but then that person's represented by a member of the Congress who doesn't necessarily feel that way, who feels that he has to preserve, or he or she has to preserve what is a tradition of that home area, the home district, which for Southerners, you know, is it's deadly. And so there are so many different layers of problems and challenges that are going to have to be faced. But you know, the other thing is that the black community have, has some really, really political firecrackers and people who are really astute at the game of politics. You know, and just off the top of my head, you'd think of someone like Cory Booker. I wish we had a Cory Booker in the Congress at the time. I mean, we had Norm Mineta and Danny Noah. They were incredible. Nothing would have happened without those two. And Spark Matsunaga was like a workhorse. He worked literally every member of the Senate. Bob Matsui contributed what he could because he came in late. He was a new member at the time. But, you know, he worked hard on this. And, but if we had someone like a Cory Booker, it would have changed a lot for us. It would have pushed us through in a very different way. I mean, we were successful in the end because of a lot of things happening that made it possible. But with Black reparations, they're facing so many obstacles. They need someone who can navigate those for them within the House and both houses of Congress to be able to get past the people who are going to try to block everything and those who are going to try to kill everything and to make this thing work to the point where it can get considered on the floor. If they're running into this kind of problem with a bill that seeks a commission to do a study and hold hearings, you can imagine what the money bill is going to look like. And this commission is charged, as the language of the bill is written, is charged with coming up with a reparations figure, a reparation, basically a reparations bill, which was what we did. We said, whatever this commission comes up with, that will be in its recommendations. That will be the language adopted by the JACL for reparations legislation, for monetary compensation. Literally, verbatim, you could look at the recommendations of the commission, our commission, and look at the legislation. It's all verbatim. And, you know, the administrative stuff was added in. But we made that pledge that, you know, and that again was luck. I mean, if they said $5,000 per person, we'd have been screwed. Because then we would have to go back on our word and say, well, we're not accepting that. That's an insult. But there were people who proposed that. You know, it's symbolic. So how about a dollar a person? But right now, if you talk about Black reparations, I think the only equitable way to do this is to talk about trillions of dollars. 
uh, there are certain formula who have been proposed on how you come to a number. That's going to be a really difficult, just that in itself is going to be a difficult fight within the black community. And they need to have that fight because they need to hear the different voices and strong opinions that'll be at the heart of that whole debate of how much money are we going to demand. They're not going to ask for it. They're going to demand it as they should. And how do you come to the formula that designs that? I've read a number of proposals. And to me, to be equitable, you're going to be talking about somewhere around $10 trillion to make some impact. You know, and it becomes this whole question philosophically about what is reparations about, really? How do you undo a wrong or how do you rectify something so wrong, whatever it is? I mean, restorative justice is one thing, but how do you undo something that is so morally abhorrent to make it right again, not just for those who went through it, but for generations that have suffered because of the attitudes that continue to exist from that moment of enslavement and dehumanizing of the, these people. And what Blacks have gone through in this country as a result of that, as it's created this whole mythology about Blacks in America. And, you know, we're now only, I think, seeing the very front end of the changes that will occur. You know, and sadly, it takes tragedies like George Floyd to awaken some Americans to just how awful this was. I mean, the fact that you could watch television, those minutes pass as this man is dying and to see him die before your very eyes. I, you know, I don't know how more realistic you can get than that. That's awful television, but it was something that people saw. And all those marches after the murder of George Floyd, what was interesting to me was the majority of the people out there were white in all these different scenes of the marches all across the country. And I was fascinated by that because I'd never seen that, that kind of support for the Black community. But I can't even begin to imagine what all the complications are going to be in the Black reparations effort, but they're starting to face them now. There'll be, you know, the arguments of who gets included and who doesn't. We face that with ours. And, you know, we're a fairly contained group. You could identify Japanese Americans easily by the years we were born and know who could or could not be eligible. And I was part of the mechanism that created the eligibility among Japanese Americans because there were some who said, you know, so-and-so shouldn't get it because he's a bad guy. Or, for example, the veterans who went off to fight the war, many of them dying. Uh, the survivors of those wars came back and they were livid with the Japanese Americans who resisted and refused to go along with the draft, saying that, you know, the whole point of all of this was to prove how American we were. And just, you know, like the bad apple. It really rotten, caused a lot of rot in the community in terms of the way the public saw us. They didn't see the 30,000 coming back as heroes. They saw the 46 who resisted and defied the government. So speaking of like that feeling and like the emotion around all of the work that you did, do you feel that, you know, you mentioned about like the success, once we were successful, when the success of the JACL campaign happened, 
emotionally, and we talk about reparations, do you feel in your heart that there was forgiveness and the ability to move on from that? That's a really interesting question because I don't believe governments ever remember. There is a real, there's like a black hole in the memory of the government. All it takes is one election and suddenly you have a whole new generation of people coming into office who need to be re-educated. To me, something like the meaning of the redress campaign is something that we Japanese Americans have a responsibility to keep educating the public about. Because the best example I can think of is that after 9-11, the JSL got very involved in trying to protect Arab and Muslim communities in this country. And I had sent out a, an edict to the JSL chapters across the country that that's our responsibility because we are the only community in the United States that understands what this is like and what can happen and what probably will happen. And we are the ones who have to prevent it from happening. We've been through this. We know it. And the response was overwhelming by the chapters. And to the point of one chapter president apparently offering to serve as body shields around one community, which I thought was insane. You know, I, I thought, that's not what I ordered them to do. I, I ordered them to assist, not to protect in that way. But that was how far we were willing to go as a community. But my work was with the media. I went around the country talking to audiences and doing interviews. And what was interesting to me is that I love radio talk programs because there's no visual and it's all words. And so people, you know, it's kind of like social media. People can be as brazen at, or as cowardly as they want because it's anonymous. And so people would call in, make these absurd statements. And, you know, I love that because I like going after people like that. And, but what was really interesting after 9-11 as I was doing this was it was very different from the redress campaign where I had to try to keep educating people about who and what happened and, and who we were as Americans. After 9-11, I would talk about what happened to Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor was attacked. And what is being proposed now with the Arab and Muslim communities and why we had to serve as a lesson of how wrong that was, because we were victims of racism without any evidence against us. We get thrown in prison, which is what was being proposed. And there was always a call. And, and it's interesting. It was mainly mostly by women who would call in and say, you know, I remember when Japanese Americans were fighting for reparations, that this sounds just like the same thing, that what all the callers are saying is, we need to round these people up because we don't know who they are. They dress different, they speak funny, and they were, you know, they, they're in enclaves, and we just can't trust that they're all going to be loyal, which is exactly what they were saying about Japanese Americans. But, you know, there were callers who called in to say, it was wrong in 1942, and it's wrong now. We need to be better than that, and we need to not let this happen again. For me, it was gratifying because the lesson had been learned. There were people who understood why it was so wrong in 1942 with World War II. But what I found going to the Congress and talking with members of Congress about their intent to introduce legislation to round up the Arabs and Muslims is that they had no memory. Either they forgot that they had actually voted on a bill 
or they didn't care that they voted on the bill, and, or they were new. They hadn't been around in those days. I mean, we're not talking, you know, 40 years between the passage of the Civil Liberties Act, our redress bill in 1988 and 2001. I mean, you're not talking, uh, you know, decades later. This is in living memory. But there actually were members of Congress who forgot they signed on that bill. And those who came later, elected to the Congress later, didn't even care about that. It's like, it's, that's not relevant to what's happening now. We have been attacked in New York and in D.C. and Pennsylvania. And to, try, to have to go through this whole exercise of educating them again about why you cannot do what you're proposing, why it's so wrong constitutionally and illegal, in fact. But, you know, it's that the Congress doesn't have that memory. It's not institutional. It should be. I mean, there is a 400-page report sitting there in every congressional office saying it was racist, it was a lack of leadership, it was hysteria, you know, all the reasons why it never should have happened. And yet it gets repeated over and over and over. And if you have leadership in this country that's willing to ignore the past, then it becomes a serious and dangerous proposition to have the leaders of the country proposing certain things ignorant of our history and the lessons we learned from that history. And so, you know, I feel like it's up to us, Japanese Americans, continue to educate the public about what happened to us. Not because we want to bitch and moan and, and groan about, you know, oh, woe is me, this happened to us, but because we are part of a living lesson for what the country should or should not do. And, you know, that we either stand proud or we stand in shame. And too often we go the wrong way on things like this. And so to try to use the lessons of the redress campaign for what's being proposed now in black reparations, it serves as a model. It informs some of the decisions, but the difficulties they're facing are just way beyond anything we had to deal with. You know, we had a lot of racism we had to deal with, but nothing like the Black community deals with on a daily basis. We're still seen as foreigners. We're the ones who are part of a target group where there's violence against Asians in this country. But, you know, the, the thing that makes it really difficult for, I think, for the slavery issue is there are no living memories. There are only the accounts of ancestors. And then you start to have to formulate this whole thing around who do we include? There are those who would say, well, if you're Black in America, you've experienced this kind of racism. So every Black person should be included. There are those who say only the direct descendants of slaves. But then, you know, you have other people who come into this country for other reasons and didn't necessarily have to go through slavery, but went through awful things anyway. Should they be considered part of the eligible group? There are so many difficult challenges they're going to have to deal with. But, you know, it's, you just have to keep pushing forward and deal with them as they come up. I think the most difficult one is the amount of money they will demand and how you get to that number. It's going to be such a, an important part of this whole effort because that will tell America this is serious and needs to be considered or it's something we can just brush aside. It's the Congress that will try to brush it aside. 
it's the movement that will demand some realistic figure to reconcile what slavery was all about. You know, it's not just forgiveness. It's, you've got to repair this country. And it's going to be very, very challenging for them. In some ways, you know, it's also an exciting thing to watch happen because no one's ever tried anything like this before. Not on that scale. I mean, we were the first group ever to get reparations from the United States government at the level that we were able to achieve that. No other group has ever tried it since, except now. And God knows they're much more deserving of what they need to get than, and than what we achieved. I feel like our role was to open that door. We cut the path. We opened the door. Now the real fights will begin. And it certainly is one of those real fights that's brewing right now. I think you said, I mean, I can't think of a better way to wrap up our show than what you just said and basically all of what you just said. Because I think what you've done is not only shared your experiences, which I so appreciate, but you've also asked some really important questions along the way. I think central to that is who do we consider to be Americans? Who are Americans? And how, if we are Americans, why are we differentiating among Americans? And being an attorney, I also really appreciated the focus on the constitutionality because that was one of the things, actually, it was the internment that really got me interested in law in the first place and set, set me on that path. And my dad was a big encourager there in that. So all of what you said, I so appreciate. We could talk to you for hours, clearly, but you know we want to respect your time as well. So thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared with us today. Can you just tell people where they can go to find some more? Well, the JACL has a website. It's jacl.org. Actually, I have a website that is johntateshi.com that lists where you can get the book, the publisher. And I think, quite honestly, you get it cheaper if you go to the publisher directly than a bookstore. I shouldn't say that because bookstores really need the business. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's nice talking to you. Thank you. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here.